You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and thanks for joining us on Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. This is where every week you're going to hear the real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who live them. And today I'm excited because my guest journey has taken him from the streets and stages of New York City out west to Tombstone and all the way to the planet Pandora. Of course, I'm talking about Stephen Lang, an incredible actor whose career has spanned more than four decades. He's played great characters like Ike Clanton in Tombstone, Major General Pickett in Gettysburg, and he was the blind man in Don't Breathe, one of the best horror movies to come out in recent times. Now, many of us know Lang best for his iconic portrayal of Colonel Quaritch in the blockbuster movie Avatar. Quaritch was a fan favorite and a very complex character whose backstory you're going to get to know more deeply here in a few minutes because Lang brings a humanity to a man who could have very easily become just a caricature, just another bombastic character that you would see in any movie, but he brings a real humanity to him. And he also brings that motivation and drive behind Quaritch's actions. He becomes a man who had purpose. But before Lang brought Quaritch and many other movie characters to life, he cut his teeth in theater, including writing and performing his powerful one-man show, Beyond Glory. Now, this tells the story of eight Medal of Honor recipients and truly honors their lives, their duty, and their heroic deeds. Now, You don't have to be in show business to know how tough it is to make it in Hollywood, but Lang did just that. He did it with courage. He did it with a belief in himself and his abilities and a commitment to succeed no matter what, and also a deep love for what he's doing. On his journey, Lang had many mentors along the way. You'll hear about how men like Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich and James Cameron exemplified a strong work ethic and led by example always striving for excellence and how even in an industry notorious for backstabbing and trying to get ahead at the expense of others, these men and other men helped him build his career. Truly an example of great men helping other men achieve their own greatness. Now, another man who had a big impact on Lang's life was his father, well-known philanthropist and Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient Eugene Lang. Eugene Lang lived to be 98 years old, and he was famous for giving away his fortune, which at the time was estimated at around $150 million. This act inspired many other wealthy men to do the same thing, give their fortunes away before their death. Eugene wanted his three kids to learn to be self-sufficient and to make their own mark in life, which each of them has, each becoming successful in their own unique way. So I asked Stephen what it was like growing up with his father. His name is Eugene Lang. He was, he was a really great guy. He was, uh, he was many things. Uh, he was, first of all, the toughest man 
I've, I've ever met in my life. He really, he was a, he could be a, a very, very hard guy, hard nosed guy in his values, in his, uh, uh, in, in the way he went about things. But he was always, uh, but he also, he was, he was a good man. As it happened, his values were strong and socially minded. Um, but he, he, he stuck to them and he would fight for them. Uh, he, he didn't lie and he stood up, he stood up to people and, and, uh, he lived his life the way he wanted to. My dad worked for himself. He was an entrepreneur. And so, uh, he, um, and that's how he, that's how he did well. That's how he made, uh, his fortune. He told me many times, uh, or he told me at least once that he said, you know, uh, you know, I could be a hell of a lot richer than I am, uh, you know, if I wanted to, if I'd wanted to work for somebody, you know, if he'd wanted to get involved with some of the businesses and, and at some point in his life, making money became far less important to him than what to do with that money. I think, you know? Yeah. So he was a great guy, but to me, he, he was, he was, he was the old man. He, uh, he was on the road a lot, which was interesting, uh, and really impacted my life. Uh, he did, a, his business was international. It allowed him to live a life kind of a, of adventure. I mean, when my dad would hit the road in the late fifties and in the, and through the sixties, he could be gone for three months at a time and wow. hit, you know, hitting six or seven or eight countries, you know, and kind of tending to these joint ventures that he was setting up with local people. And, and, uh, and he'd send back letters. This was back when the world was still a pretty big place, you know? And so, so he'd be gone, and then, and, and then when he came back, you know, going to, we'd all go to the airport to pick him up. It was like, you know, the Queen Mary landing or something like that. You know, it was always a big deal. Sure. But what was interesting about it was we had two kind of modes of life. One was when my dad was there, when things were, they kind of ran his way, you know? And then when my dad was not there, things loosened up like crazy. <laughs> right. My mother, who has has probably who certainly has as much a profound effect on who I am as my dad did. Uh, she was just a lot sort of more easygoing, you know. When he was when he was there, things kind of were a little more precise and everything like that. But they were great too. So what was nice was you kind of learned to live kind of both, kind of you know, under both regimes, as it were. So Lang grew up learning from both the masculine and feminine sides. He learned to respect both and also to honor his father. I asked him what else he learned from his father. Yeah. Well, what else did you get from your dad? What, are, what other values, uh, qualities, things you learned, you know, with your own family did you pick up from your dad besides that? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think uh, to, to be as analytic uh, about things as you can to really understand, uh, a, to try and understand the question before you weigh in on it. I learned don't ever be greedy, mm. that being greedy is, I think being greedy to him was um, just a terrible sin, you know? And uh, uh, to spread it around, to always spread around, uh, uh, you know, whatever you could to be helpful with things sometimes it's money but a lot of times it's more than that you know it's kind of 
involvement in, in some way. Sure. Yeah. Uh, he also had, a, he had, he had a great love of uh, learning and literature uh, and the arts. He was a well-rounded guy. He was a hell of a baseball player too. I mean, my father was a pitcher in uh, school. And so of course, both my brother and I got turned into catchers because he needed somebody <laughs> to throw to. Throw to. Yeah. Play, you know, he'd be blazing him in there, you know, and, and, you know, my brother would be in there and he'd catch one in the nuts and he'd get knocked out of the box and I'd have to go in there for a while, you know. So when that, you know, he had a, he had a, he had a hell of a fastball and a, and a curveball that would co kind of go anywhere. And, uh, and that's, that, that's kind of what I got from my dad too. So he's kind of toughing you up there a little bit, right? Too with that, huh? Like I say, he was a tough guy, and he was a tough, tough-minded man, and and he and he he was a tough. He was just flat out a tough guy. When my old man would come home, first thing he'd do is he'd drop his briefcase and he'd put up his fists, and we'd start uh, boxing together, right? Okay. And and he, he he would do this with me. He wouldn't do it with my brother because my brother would take it real seriously, and you know, and deck him. You know, I'm kidding. How old were you guys at the time? Well, I mean, we're talking about from the time I'm like four till the time I'm, you know, eleven or something. Oh, so this this is like a thing that's gone on for years. Oh, went on for years. Yeah, yeah. He's like, beat the hell out of me. But 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 then he did this thing, and this is like totally schizo. You know, so this explains a lot. You know, at some point he'd be kind of whacking on me, and I'd be kind of whacking on him. At, Although, as I think about it, I realize how unfair it was because, you know, he could whack me, but I wasn't going to, like, hit my father, you know? Uh, and then at some point, he'd grab me by the head and he'd give me a big kiss. So it was like, <laughs> so he'd kind of beat me and kiss me, beat me and kiss me. And so, so there you have it in a nutshell, you know? That's why I am who I am. And, sure. Uh, That's and like that was, yeah. yeah, I suppose you'd call that tough love. I swear to you, I was just going to say that's probably the definition of tough love right there. <laughs> but he was a good, he was a very funny guy. He was very funny. And we got along gangbusters basically all our lives. Had very few rifts between us, you know. So, yeah. Oh, and he's, he, he, liked, he, he liked to see me have success and do what I, you know, was doing. And, and he did get to live to see you uh, have the success, right? Yeah, he did. He lived, lived a good, good, good through it. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And yeah. then um, when he passed, he gave away his fortune. Did <laughs> nobody told you, Stephen? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that was always his his uh, his way was uh, uh, whatever he he was worth, he was going to give it away. But he didn't just give money away. He um, he gave it away in really, I think, constructive ways. In in a lot of ways, it would be not at all correct to say that he's the father of philanthropy but he certainly was pioneering in a certain type of philanthropy i think which is to say that um one might say that the money he gave away came with strings but those were strings of responsibility you know people had to they had to measure up to 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 kind of use the money properly mm -hmm. they you know so they had to be accountable i suppose is a good way to put it and um, he had to earn it more than just be entitled to it or just be handed it. He wanted to see some form of yeah. responsibility and earning it. He wanted, he wanted it to be used creatively and intelligently and, uh, um, and effectively. And so, uh, and, and that's, and he would, so, so he would many times 
you know, not just give the money, but talk about how he felt this should be impl implemented. And there are times you can only, there's only so much you can do, of course, you know, with that, because ultimately you're giving away the money. But he did, and uh, he, uh, um, he my, my father had a facility for uh, knowing how to make money. And at the same time, I think he had a uh, kind of a contempt for it, for what it does. Really, people. tell me about that—the contempt that he had for it. I just think, well, he would, he would, he. I think he saw, saw too many uh, rich man's sons mm -hmm. who turned out badly. There's a real sense of duty and honor to what Lang's father did—to let his kids know he made his own way in the world, and he wanted them to know the value of making their own way as well. To not turn out badly, as Lang puts it, to be productive and accomplished in their own right. And all three of them did. Stephen's brother took over their father's business. His sister is a successful attorney and activist in New York. And of course, Stephen built a successful career as an actor. I asked him how he got into acting. It's not so much that I got into acting as I got into watching um, movies and television. Remember that this is the kind of, uh, I'm a child of the 50s and, and the 60s. And those were the television years. That's when television was going. So I grew up watching, you know, um, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon and Robin Hood and William Tell and Ramar of the Jungle and Combat. I watched all these things. So it's not that I wanted to be an actor so much as I wanted to, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be Robin Hood. I, yeah. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a, a Canadian Mountie, you know, whatever. Uh, and of course, uh, the movies that, that I watched back in those days were all you know, Errol Flynn films and these adventure films and everything. Say, just, so you had this sense of adventure in the hero is really what you were drawn to, right? I think so. The sense of, yeah, the, 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 uh, yeah, just those worlds were just so alluring to me. It's not that they were, there was nothing wrong with my world. You know, it's not like I was living a humdrum life, but those worlds were extraordinary. And then I, and I wanted to ride, the whole, I wanted to ride horses and command ships, and I wanted to stab people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Whatever. yeah, and uh, and I never have, I've never completely outgrown that. So, <laughs> so yeah. there you go. Uh, then, I, then at some point, it dawned on me that you know you can do these things if you act, if you become an actor, and that's 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 why. And I was never uh, um, never dissuaded from it you know what I mean nobody ever said to me no 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 that's not what you're doing you so your know? parents were very supportive they were they were good with you pursuing this line of work because a lot of people you know I talk to that are in performers actors musicians whatever it is even athletes to some degree they get this from their parents they try to get that no 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 you can't do this only a few people ever make it so why right. bother? and then there's the other side of that coin where you have people who push you into is mm -hmm. you know who, who decide you're gonna, they're going to do everything they can to make you into a ballerina or an ice skater or a you know exactly. tennis player or sure. uh, whatever they or, failed at as a kid they're going to force on their own children right yeah and that 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 never happened uh, that never happened with me at all uh, it wasn't forced on me but it was certainly uh, um, 
you know, it was in your loving of the arts was totally encouraged, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. So that's, uh, that was never really a, an issue. And th that's partly because look, I grew up in New York city. So, you know, it's not like you're, you don't have the, if I'd grown up in, you know, um, wherever. Yeah. Like at a farm somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere. And announce you're going to New York that, well, people whoa 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 you know i could understand parents saying hold on a second there new york that's that's not you don't want to go there that's full of uh you know corruption and and people and loose women and the whole thing man you can't go <laughs> and then you're thinking that's exactly where i want to be going <laughs> but but we, but since i grew up there we i was surrounded by it i suppose it was sort of natural yeah and so tell me about how you got started acting and, and how you kind of got it. Because did you start as a writer first or in theater and then got into? Well, I've been, uh, I, I, I started certainly like so many in my business just by being in school plays. And eventually you get the part in a play that you, you want and you, you are terrific in it or everybody tells you are and you, or you feel like you are or something like that. I'm good at this. But the, the, the important thing that happened to me, it goes back to, uh, to, to high school. We had a teacher there, uh, Mr. Cleveland, who was, uh, he taught two things there. He taught theater and he taught religion mm -hmm. there. And, and what was interesting about it was that he kind of taught them both in the same way. And, what he, and for, him, for him, theater was a religion. And, hey, tell me about and, that. Like, what would he say? I, well, what he did when, you know, so I'm 15 years old when I start, when I study with, with Mr. Cleveland. And he didn't teach me how to be a, a, a good actor. He didn't teach me that. But what he did was he inspired me with the notion that the theater was a really, really important place. That what, what happened in the theater, that theater served a sacred function. I mean, not to get too highfalutin about it, but remember, that's how he felt, and he was talking to 15-year-old kids, 15, 16-year-old kids, which, and at that particular age, in my view, teaching the skills is less important than kind of laying the foundation, the, the inspiration for what it all is really about, you know, why this is important in the first place. And, and that's, that stuck with me. Uh, and, uh, I think I, when I came out of there, I was, you know, thinking, well, I, I, I don't know, maybe I can do this. And, um, and from then on, I, 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 it was always there. I was always working. Even when I went to college, I started working in the local theater, which was a semi-professional theater. And then when I got out of school for good, when I got a degree, uh, which I'm, which I was very glad I got because it because I learned a lot, <laughs> uh, which has been very useful in my career. Uh, um, then I went, then I just went down and I, I gave it a try. I decided to try it. And I, I became an actor and I found, I found, you know, acceptance on, you know, at certain levels all along the way. Nothing so dire ever happened to make me leave the business everything that happened to me was kind of good enough so that it encouraged me to take the next step. And, uh, so yeah, tell me more about that. Cause I mean, no, a lot of actors struggle. They hit a lot of walls. They may yeah. bounce out for a while, get back in, but, but you were kind of moving step by step through. 
Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I had to, I wasn't, I just would audition for anything. And, uh, and, and then I'd get, I'd get a job and back in those days, this is in the early, in, from 74 on is when I really count myself as, you know, becoming a, becoming an actor. Okay. Uh, I got, uh, I would get a job and my first gig in New York was uh, in the ensemble in uh, Shakespeare in the Park, but, uh, but I was given lines. And then when that show moved on to Lincoln Center, uh, I became part of the union. So, uh, and, and, and I didn't need much to live mm -hmm. back in, you know, then. And, um, and so I just kept, uh, I'd audition for everything. And I had, I had a facility. I was good enough to get the parts. And, I, and I, hopefully I kept growing as I was doing them. And, uh, and, I, and I, were, I went out of town whenever I could. And before you know it, you, you turn around and you realize that the days of wanting to be an actor are actually five years past, but you've actually been an actor. For, the, for five years and you're kind of you understand a bit of how it works it's not easy <laughs> but but it was always uh I, I always kind of kept moving forward and 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 kind of having faith as long as i kept showing up uh that eventually i'd get uh you know i'd catch a, a really good break yeah so it seems like you were more i'm going to get to that in a second but it seems like you were more focused on the journey as you were going, like just taking it step by step, appreciating everything you had as you were going, rather than looking at it and going, I'm not, I don't have a star on the Walk of Fame yet, so I must not be an actor. Yeah, I think that I, I learned uh, a long time ago that, that kind of, uh, you know, it's like the song says, inch by inch, row by row, gonna make my garden grow. And, and I think I felt that way. I never, when I started out, I didn't start out to be a star. I just wanted to be, uh, I just wanted to be on the team. Yeah. <laughs> know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll tell you, part of the reason is, is that when I started in New York, so many of the people uh, I knew I became friendly with or competed against were conservatory trained actors. They had gone to Juilliard, they'd gone to Yale, they'd gone to Northwestern, they'd gone to out in Texas. Uh, and they, they, and so first of all, they had networks when mm -hmm. they got to, you know, they, they, they knew people, they could all support each other. And I felt, even though I had a really good education, it was not an act, it was not a theater education, not an acting education at all. So I really felt I had to learn the craft almost step by step. And so I, I was that that that's what I I I did. And so yeah, I think there was kind of a methodical kind of approach from from me. Sure. Yeah. Do you have any mentors or anything along the way? Anyone who helped kind of guide you, show you the ropes, move you forward? There there's there are a lot of people who were important to me. Uh, I can't I can't speak about <clears throat> any specific actor who took me by the hand and took me through it. There are many actors who gave me good advice. I remember a good old buddy of mine, uh, once uh, I was in my first show in Washington with him before I came back to New York and he had come down from to New York and we got to know each other. 
his name was Earl Hindman. I don't know if you remember that show, Home Improvement with Tim Allen. Yeah, sure, of course. He played the neighbor behind <laughs> Yeah, I love that. It was a great character, sure. And so that was Earl Hindman. And Earl uh, was in a production of Henry IV Part One with him at Folger Theater. And he told me he, he, we'd, get, we'd drink after a show, get pyrod. And he told me, he said, remember, get angry, but never get bitter. And I thought, okay. And you know what? He's right. He was, he was absolutely right, I thought. And, uh, and, and so was he a mentor? No. But I learned something good from Earl, and there have been dozens of them along the way. Uh, the a actors who are, who, are, who are really the reigning kings of the stage at the time when I was really impressionable were Sam Waterston and I was in his Hamlet, so that was a big deal. And also Stacy Keach, who I always regarded as a great, great actor. And then I, years later, Stacy and I worked together on stage and became great friends. So uh, again, I, I wouldn't call either of them mentors, but I, but they, but they, they were, were people that you looked up to, men you look up to that you got bits of wisdom from along the path, right? I looked at their careers and I, and I thought, I like, I like the arc of that career. For me, uh, there's no greater uh, arc than, than Paul Newman. Uh, uh, Paul Newman was kind of everything to me uh, because he combined the actor with the movie star in in just an absolute kind of way. And that's and there's so many others who I love and appreciate. Uh, uh, Bobby Duvall, of course, and Gene Hackman were huge. Ah, the list goes on. They don't get any better than Meryl Streep. You know, there's yeah. a lot of fake. I look at all of them. And, I got, you know, Bogart was my hero. You know, Cagney was a god to me. Eddie G. Robinson. I mean, this is just... And what was it about these men? Like, what were some of the characteristics and qualities of these guys that just, you know... It's their work. It was their work. Now, with Newman, it went beyond that because Newman became a very public figure in a lot of ways. And his sort of the way he lived his life philanthropically, I think, was really wonderful. And, uh, and the fact that he was a race car driver also is pretty cool, I thought. You know, yeah. I, mean, I just love Newman, yeah. you know. Sure. Uh, but, uh, no, but usually it's the quality of the work, the choices that they made, the types of roles that they took. You know, where I would say, if I look at Bogart's roles, it's like, oh, yeah, those are the kind of roles I want to play. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I really respect the effort these men who were already successful and established, the effort that they made to be an example, to guide and to mentor. It's a clear demonstration of how important and how powerful that is. Now, since many know him most for his role as Colonel Quaritch, I asked Lang if Avatar was his big break in Hollywood. No, I'd had the break before them. Avatar was a huge break, but the biggest break I ever had was Death of a Salesman in New York. At that, in, in 83, I was cast, and at that point, I'd been working for 10 years and was a bona fide actor. And then I was cast when uh, in Dustin Hoffman was bringing his Willie Loam, Death of a Salesman, to Broadway. And um, uh, the sons are Biff and Happy. And uh, John Malkovich was cast as Biff, and I was cast as Happy. That was a, that was a monumental break for me, because everybody, Everybody wanted the part, you know? 
Sure. So, so that was great, and it and 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 it just sort of made uh, it just it just sort of put you a little bit higher on the list, or or it just made you a little more well known. You know, it's not that things get easier because you're just you're still competing against superb actors, and then. Um, but then, uh, so that, that was the biggest. So what was it like working with them? So you're working with Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich. Yeah, we had, a, it was great. What, and what is that like? Tell me what it's like working with them. Because those guys are, you know. John was young and, uh, and, and coming out of Steppenwolf and had, had a kind of a wonderful eccentric style to him. And, and we adapted well to each other. And, and Dustin was, uh, Dustin is unrelenting. Is the, I, I always thought, you know, thought of Dustin as the Pete Rose of acting. I mean, just uh, uh, he, just this unrelenting quest to continually dig into the characters. And it was there uh, from the first rehearsal to the 297th performance. You know, just this constant sort of digging. And, and I loved it. I learned a lot uh, from it. To me, it was sort of like, uh, you know, a, uh, being paid to get a master's degree in 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 acting, so yeah, that was that was great. I was gonna say it's almost like he never took his foot off the pedal. I mean, he is Dustin Hoffman. He is starring in this role, and he's still digging, still moving, still trying to improve, still looking for next level. Well, what it is is that you you understand that it that the process and the performance become all one thing. That you know, you got to take joy in the journey. Take that's where the that's where the fun is. That's where that's where the sex is. Is in the is in the unearthing the journey. I mean, you know, we could learn to do something, and we could freeze it and do it that way for the rest of our, you know, time. But that's that's not the way he he worked, and it's never been the way I work either. Uh, uh, and so, so in part, it, it had to do with he, he, he probably found me because I had an agreeable style, but my style was only kind of, uh, in a way, kind of vindicated or, you know, uh, reinforced by, by, hit, by him and John and everyone else in the cast, I'd say, yeah. as well. Yeah. And you still yeah. do that now to this day? I mean, is that still your work uh, process? Yeah, I mean. Dig in and dig in and dig in. And... Well, yeah, I, I hope it is. Uh, you know, working in it it, 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 working in film and and working in the theater are not. It's not so much that they're fundamentally different. You know, in terms of of, of acting, but a lot of times the time differential is is uh, is drastically different. So the amount of time you really have to dig, you know, is is. Uh, I mean, the sheer repetitiveness of theater, the fact that you do the show eight times a week in itself makes it a uh, you know an evolutionary process you know in uh, incremental change that happens just it's it's natural it's organic it just happens when you work in film you you want to take that you want you want there to be those changes but they may have to happen in the course of a four hour you know shooting day uh, you know four hours on one particular scene or eight hours or whatever it may be you know you kind of have to really learn to dig deeply and dig quickly, it seems to me. Uh, uh, yeah, now that's not a hard and fast rule, you know, by any means. Which do you but, prefer? I mean, what, what do you prefer personally? The theater and, and digging in and doing it over and over and refining and refining or the speed of, the, of filming? 
Yeah, I pref yes, the answer is yes. I, prefer, <laughs> I, I really do. Well, well uh, um, I, I do love the speed uh, of, uh, of film, <laughs> not all film, because, <laughs> because Avatar is not what I would call a speedy film. We've been making it for a long time. But, uh, but, but say, a really good example is working in television. Working in television really does demand that you work with, with dispatch. You know, this is going to get shot today. And, uh, and I love that. I love making fat, quick, good, sound decisions and, and, and going with them. Uh, on the other hand, you know, kind of just kind of continually working over material has its own uh, set of challenges and its own benefits. Uh, you know, I've done my show, Beyond Glory, uh, which is my solo show. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've done that somewhere, I don't really know, but somewhere between four and 500 times. And uh, if I ever start doing it by rote, that's when it's time to stop doing it, you know? And indeed, I do stop for several years at a time and then go back to it and see where my, see, see what's changed in me, you know, in my, in my relationship to the material and how I'm able to kind of physicalize it and express it. So I, I dig that too. So, so, the, so the answer to your question is, I really like acting in kind of all its forms, you know, it, it yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you're talking about Beyond Glory and, and doing it four or 500 times, I think what I'm getting for that, from that is never get comfortable. Right. Don't get comfortable in whatever you're doing. Don't just coast. Is that uh -huh. fair to say? I mean, let, let's let's keep pushing. You take a few years off. You look at what you did. You yeah. kind of get reinvigorated, refreshed. Yeah. I mean, I'd say now I'm not sure I'd use the word comfortable because I like to be comfortable. But <laughs> but 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 I would say never get complacent. OK, about, certainly. Uh, uh, you know, there's a old uh, it's funny. Um, one of my favorite quotes is reputedly something that Daniel Boone said, and it's uh, it's actually figured in it's it's sort of as close as I come to having a philosophy of acting. And what he said was, he said, "Just because I don't know where I am doesn't mean I'm lost." Mm. And and that's how I that that is the state that I like to be in 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 a role in theater sometimes or in films sometimes to kind of, you know, uh, to get myself lost in the forest, but, uh, or get myself into the forest, but you always have guiding stars and, you know, you, you have things that you, you, you're, you're still comfortable. You're not, you're not experienced discomfort, but you can't afford to be complacent because, you know, you get eaten up or, or something, but that's, uh, that's how I, I feel about it. Yeah, I like, but I like continually to be challenged. I like to find, uh, I don't like to play the same role over again, which is different than playing a role night to night to night to night. But I don't like, like I get offered a lot of military roles, right? And, uh, um, you know, when I read a military role, it's got to be better than the other military roles. Or it's got to have possibilities that I that I didn't see in the you know it's got to be another angle on it. Can't, I, I don't want to repeat myself. Lang is always pushing, always striving to be better, to wring more out of what he does. And as he tells me, 
also finding the magic in everything that you do. So it is. So it's always that continual growth, right? And I think that's something that's, that's almost inherent in acting, right? You have to continually grow to have your career grow. It's I, not like you're I, going to work as, and I'm, I'm not going to put down accounts, but I'm, I'm saying it's not like you're an accountant and you know what's happening every day. You're doing something every day. When acting, it's you constantly got to be growing, challenging, moving forward, looking for new. Well, I, I would hope that, I, I would hope that an accountant would take, you know, magic out of what they do as well. And I, and I think that that is possible just because I know that numbers can, can be magical to, to people. There are people who just thrive on combinations of numbers that it becomes a, a sort of music for them. So, I mean, when I think of accountants, I like at their best, I like to think of them in that state, you know? Uh, you know, but uh, I, but for an act, for, for an actor, yeah, very definitely. It's, it's, you're in a, you're in a state of, of uh, kind of, of change all the time of growth. Uh, it seems to me, you know, trying to move ahead, move backwards, move to the side, move below. You want to examine all the corners of your life. And as you age, as, as, as one ages too, different aspects of your own self become available to explore through parts and other areas get kind of shut down in a way. There are things yeah. that you can't really explore as, as well as you could before. Tell me a little bit more about that. Tell me about stuff you're using now that you're, you know, a, an older, <laughs> more experienced actor that you're using in these roles. Well, I'm into old man's strength these days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? Is that it? Strong old men? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like I somehow, <laughs> somehow it's sort of, sort of, it's kind of worked out that I'm I'm kind of, I'm this, I'm a strong old man now I'm kind of uh, you know um, yeah and uh, and so you get thought of for the, the the tough old man roles and it's like okay it could be worse you know I mean I, I you know if I'm gonna get typed I, I I'm just as happy and then I'll find one where I can be really weak and really vulnerable you know on the lookout for something like that I think. I asked Lang what specifically he takes from his own life experience to bring to these characters. Question was, what are you taking from your own experience in your own life now that you get to put into these roles that you get to yeah. kind of explore more you, and expand you may, on? You, you may not even know that until you get into the role and you start drawing on, on, on experiences, you know, I mean, shoot, I could, I, I could play, I could play grandfathers real well. You know, because because I am one, you know, and I'm uh, uh, learning it. Um, yeah, I just think you you just take your life experience and you kind of go at it, but you go at things. Always go at things kind of in a new way. Or oh, what does that mean? Uh, um, just it, just kind of suspend. I like to read a, a thing and just let it operate on me for a while. And with, it, with kind of a certain faith that that it's gonna it's gonna play itself through me in a way. You know, acting to me has never been about bringing, you know, acting being a, a kind of a platform for my own behavior or anything like that. Acting is transformational to me. It's like I I always um, the the role the character is more important than I am. 
And so you're secondary, right? You're stepping out and letting that kind of take over. Yeah, I need to become something else. That's that that's probably as close as I come to having a rule about acting. It's not a rule. It's just an approach. It's just the, what I what I think, you know. Um, so uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my that's my view. As I mentioned in my intro, Lang wrote and performs a one-man show called Beyond Glory that tells the stories of Medal of Honor recipients. It dives into how receiving the Medal of Honor affected these men and their lives. It's about honoring these men, about telling their stories of commitment, of duty, of love and selflessness in the face of unimaginable fear. It's about making sure their stories are heard and never forgotten. So I asked Lang how the show came about. I wrote it from a buddy of mine, old basketball buddy of mine, been the managing editor of Parade Magazine, wrote a book called Beyond Glory, which were uh, interviews, first-hand accounts of Medal of Honor recipients from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, uh, about uh, 25 or 27 of them. And I read the book, and it was pre-publishing, pre-publication, and it it's it just kind of opera it worked on me and uh and so i took it and i adapted it did a lot of writing on it and turned it into a solo performance yeah so what about it what what was so inspiring for you in these stories of these men well first off they were just flat out great stories i thought they were really really uh and um the the uh i mean What's inspiring about them on kind of, there are a lot of levels to talk about that probably gets into some of the core values that I think are important, you know, to you in the, in the podcast, but uh, that you speak about. But um, first, first of all, there was just this appeal to me. Remember when we were talking about me watching Robin Hood or Ramar wanting to purchase these tales in their own way had the same kind of effect on me. Uh, the men, uh, their voices, it was a beautiful piece of journalism, the book, because I was, you're never aware of the journalist. You really hear the men's voices. And as I began to write, to t- what, basically what I'd do is I'd take these 20-page interviews and I'd form it into kind of a bullion cube of drama, of theater, you know? I'd, turn it into something that was dramatic rather than than history channel and uh and add acting and it should explode that was the idea and that's kind of the way it works um and uh and i could vi- and i could actually the voices when i began doing them began to just come out come out of me you know and so uh that's i i don't know what you what you call that whether you know it's not that it was i read it and thematically i felt i have to do this or this deals with kind of issues that i want to deal with no the stories were amazing and they just kind of they they were sort of crying out to be vocalized and 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 physicalized and externalized you know they're dying to get off the page i thought and uh and so that's that's really what i what i did with them sure Sure. And you, we talk about the, 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 the core values of some of these guys. I mean, I, I can feel just the duty, the honor, the love, the commitment, the courage. I mean, all of those things had to be in all of these men. 
Yeah, I think so. Although I don't think they would kind of frame it that way. Uh, in the moment, certainly. Uh, well, I mean, you know, all of the, the fellows who uh, received the Medal of Honor will basically say, uh, look, I did what had to be done. You know, I, I did uh, I did it for the guy next to me and the guy next to him and the guy next to him because, you know, they couldn't do it. I did it because if I didn't do it, we were all going to die. You know, so necessity becomes the thing there. But of course, they choose to do something that most other guys didn't choose to do, you know. So what is it about them that kind of makes them so special? They share all this thing. And I think a lot of times they spend a lot of time in their life looking back and reflecting on it and wondering exactly what it was that made them 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 do uh, what they did. And it's always... It's like uh, a moment kind of thing for them, right? It was, they just oh, did what be done in the moment. Thing. It's the defining moment of their lives. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the, the Medal of Honor is the pebble in the pond of their life. And those ripples go in all kinds of directions. Uh, they reflect your entire childhood, the, how you were brought up, uh, uh, every, you know, everything about that, that led you to be the person you are that could go, you know, would would jump out of that foxhole in the face of absolute death and danger. Uh, uh, and by the same token, the way your life unfolds after having performed that action is reflected by that action as well. Because, uh, you know, uh, expectations are created when you receive the Medal of Honor. You know, you, uh, you know, it may, it probably won't surprise you that not everyone who receives the Medal of Honor is, is a paragon of virtue when they, you know, they just, it could be, you could have a scoundrel who just happens to do something completely insane and very brave and receive a Medal of Honor. But then the Medal of Honor itself, becoming a recipient imposes its own kind of, uh, its own, I, I'd say, uh, expectations. Uh, uh, on you in terms of how you represent, you know, in terms of your behavior, how you live your life. So, yeah, it definitely is the defining moment of, of, of one's life, for sure. Besides performing the show for audiences around the country, Lang has also performed it on military bases for our troops overseas. I asked him what that is like and the reaction from our men and women serving long tours far from home. The first production was at uh, uh, down in Arlington, Virginia, and it got spotted there by the National Endowment for the Arts, and they saw an opportunity. And so I said I'd, I'd kind of go into cahoots with them, but the uh, I, I, my aim was to bring it to the, the you know the service, the military, and so back in uh, 2005. Uh, the we the, I was it was an unprecedented kind of relationship between the National Endowment for the Arts and the Department of Defense, and that's what Beyond Glory went out under the aegis of, and I played it all over the world, and and I've done tours, military tours since then as well. I still love doing it. Yeah. What, what's the reaction that, from these guys overseas when they see it? They're first of all, they're just glad. They're 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 pleased 
that you take the time to come, you know, just for showing up, right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> like, in the end, would they rather see, you know, Beyond Glory or see, like, uh, you know, Jeanette Lee, the Black Widow, shoot eight ball, you know, put on an eight ball exhibition? Possible the Black Widow would win, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, it's that, uh, but they're great. And I've learned over the years, I modify the show for the military. You know, I don't give them the straight kind of 80-minute uh, uh, theater experience that I do. I do a far more, I kind of do an annotated version of the show. Because a lot of these young people who are serving, uh, they, uh, they might know me from uh, Tombstone or from Avatar or from something on television, something like that. That's right. what they relate to. So I talk about that as well. So I'll usually do maybe three pieces, maybe three or four pieces from Beyond Glory. But but I'll also I'll also talk, engage them in a, more of a conversational thing. They appreciate they appreciate the show a lot. They get they get. But you know, it's a, it, I I I remember we were I was up in uh, going to play Camp Red Cloud up in uh, in in Korea the up at the DMZ right. And I actually heard a sergeant major say to a platoon, he said, uh, you will attend the performance of Beyond Glory at 1600, and you will enjoy it immensely. <laughs> and, thought, and that is an order. I thought, I'm dead. I'm dead, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, any any of the servicemen come up to you afterwards? I mean, what kind of things are they saying to you after they see the show? Or well, just for, in general? If, if you're talking about active service, yeah, there's always thank you, really thank you so much for coming. Thank you for coming. You know, uh, that's the main thing. When I do it, um, and and of course veterans see the show a lot, and they're always waiting. You know, whenever we do the show, every performance, I always come out in the lobby after and spend as much time as is needed there to sign and to do photos and to, and to hear stories because uh everybody not everybody but so many people want to express uh either gratitude or 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 tell you tell you something uh tell you a story their own story or their uncle's story their dad or their son's or daughter's story and so that that's part of the gig it seems to me, but it's got to do with kind of a, you know, there's a sharing aspect to it. They feel like I've, they feel like when I do the show, I've given them something. And what I've really given them is kind of an opportunity for them to express their own feelings about it. Right. They've probably been holding these in for who knows how long. And now they see kind of a, um, like a kindred spirit. Well, you know, of course, veterans many, many veterans are very, very loath to, to speak about the uh, war. And, you know, the number of people who came, come up to me and said, my, my dad was in Korea and he never, ever would talk about it at all, ever. I mean, that, that's, that, you know, I hear that all the time. And, uh, and, and so, you know, there's, there's kind of a therapeutic almost quality, I think, for the show because many times the family say and now i kind of understand why he he didn't talk about it you know because what people go through is so 
intense. Yeah. Yeah. And what has that brought up for you in order to be able to give this to them? I'm thankful. I mean, I, I've always felt that I get more out of it than, than anybody. I mean, just you get that, you know, you get the positive uh, support and energy that you get from people. It's, it, you know, you go home feeling really good. I mean, it's, uh, I like doing it. It feels like, it feels like a, a, an honorable undertaking. When are you going to start doing it again? I mean, have you, uh, well, actually, I'm going to do one performance in, on November 16th. You know, around Veterans Day uh, is is the time when there's always demand for it. I'm not touring this year. We toured last year, and we'll either tour in 21 or 22. Let's uh, let's talk briefly about uh, Avatar, because right? that's <laughs> the big one that everyone knows you from. Um, um, you know, I mean, done just some tremendous, tremendous work in, in a lot of film, a lot of theater. But Avatar is where we know you most. So tell me about how that role came to you and how you created this character. Because it's an, when the first time I saw the movie, that was the character that I connected with. Of, of everyone in the film, I was like, I don't know why, but this guy. There's something about this character. That's good. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it came about, I was, it came about specifically because of Beyond Glory. I, after, in 2007, uh, I'd been doing Beyond Glory for like three or four years, wherever, in different places, when I got the call to bring it to the Roundabout Theater in New York, bring it to Broadway. So, uh, although technically off-Broadway, it's 499-seat theater, their theater on 46th Street, beautiful theater, perfect theater for Beyond Glory. So there I was getting ready to open my show on Broadway, and I get a call uh, saying that uh, James Cameron would like to know if you'd be interested in, in reading a script of a film that he's going to start doing. And I said, absolutely. And they said, great, you have to sign a lot of stuff because, you know, there's a big non-disclosure, a big secret. And I said, I'll sign whatever you want. Yeah. Anyway, they sent the script over under armed guard and everything. And I read the script and I was like, are you kidding me? This role, are you kidding me? And I, I said, yeah, the role is the best role in the film, and the film is amazing. Anyway, uh, word came down that, well, Jim was glad I liked the script. He'd like to have a conversation with me. So we had a call. He was out in California, and Did I was in. Did you him before or previously or worked with him at all? Yeah. First thing is we, I knew I had, and he, he brought it up right away. I'd, read, I'd auditioned for Aliens. I think 18 years pr previously and and I'd given a really really good audition and I was in mixed in his mind and in the end you know I didn't I didn't do it but that happens but he'd never uh he, he'd remembered the audition but what had happened was uh his his casting director had um read the New York Times looked at the New York Times and in the Times was an ad for Beyond Glory coming in and the ad is a photo of me kind of, you know, looking real strack and military and everything like that. And, went, and she said, hey, Jim, uh, what do you think of Stephen Lang? And he said, Stephen Lang, yeah, he's a good actor, what? And she showed him the picture and he went, huh, Quaritch. And that's how it happened. Wow. And uh, Yeah, and then I went out there and on my day off, they, they flew me out. I went up to his house and we, we screwed around for a couple hours. Uh, not scoot around, we, we improvised and, uh, uh, in his kitchen. And by the time I got back to the airport to fly back to New York, I had the part. It was crazy. You made the decision right there. Like just 
messing around yeah. in the kitchen doing yeah, stuff. They, they I, I feel like, yeah, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like he'd made the decision before that in a sense, when I went in there, it was mine to lose. You know what I mean? But that wasn't going to happen. I just, I, 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 I worked, I brought everything I had to that audition and then tried to leave it at the door and just go in and be myself, you know, and it was good. Worked out, worked out good. <laughs> yeah, so. so what about the character? I mean, what did you bring from your own experience into this character? Well, my job, of course, was, I, look, I, I, I understand the function of this character in the story, okay? I get it, right? But my job is to be an advocate for this character. My job is to defend this character. And my job was to kind of understand his, his job in the context of that world and all that that entails and all, the, all that that brings, uh, all the... Uh, uh, the, 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 all, all the, the strictures and the problems and the opportunities that it brings. This guy is the head of security. I mean, I just approach it like this dude is the head of security in a fundamentally insecure place. In other words, he is, he is basically, he is doomed to, there are going to be losses along the way. And he is of the personality type that does not take losses particularly well at all. Uh, so that, that's sort of one big component of the guy. And then the other component, <coughs> another component of it was uh, this guy has been, you know, he did four tours, five tours back, in, back on Earth. And the Earth that we're talking about is an earth where the rules of engagement have gone completely out the window. That that there's there's very little honor in being uh, being a soldier anymore, particularly when you're fighting insurgents who are children or whatever it may be. That the wars are dirty, filthy, dirty wars. And but still, the ads on the on are there. You still join up for the right reasons. Be all that you can be. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that, and so I think that what had been an extremely uh, idealistic kind of uh, enlistment for him turned into something else. And uh, at some point, he is there. Sort of the the ends of his soul got burned away, and he just kind of cauterized them, you know. And uh, you know, and so he's become. That's who. That, that's the man who takes the job as head of security up in Pandora. And, uh, and that, that, that was kind of my starting thing, you know, with him. And then just uh, kind of go from there, just sort of always begin kind of, you know, massaging and twisting and discussing with Jim and, and fighting it out and debating it and stuff. And, and just, I mean, crafting that role has been one of the great joys of my life. And, uh, uh, and I know part of the reason is, is that the writer, Jim Cameron, and director, Jim Cameron, loves that role. He loves all the roles. <laughs> but he, he, loves, he loves Quaritch. He loves him to, he loves to have that point of view you know, be articulated, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and you had to bring humanity to that character with everything you just said about the background that, and the backstory. And what's funny, what's coming up as you're saying this is that, that bit of advice that you got earlier was be angry, but don't be bitter. Yeah. And with him, but, I feel that little bit of that bitter is starting to come through. No, you, you, you're right about that. That's it. He's, he's sort of lost part of himself. There is that, and you know, when some, when there's a bitter taste in your mouth for long enough, you don't recognize it as bitterness anymore. It just becomes part of, part of what you taste. You know what I mean? So that's it. But if you examine the character uh, in terms of virtues, well, Quaritch has got them. I mean, Quaritch has got, he's got integrity. He's got, he's got great leadership qualities. He's got fortitude. He's got courage. He leads from the front. He's loyal. Uh, he's a lot of good things, and these things are have been in this are are twisted as we were talking about before. They're not they're not pure, but it, but they're also in the service of something that is fundamentally uh, evil. But you wouldn't you wouldn't know it because you know pioneering new worlds is there's nothing that's intrinsically evil about. You know, it's what we do. We go to the moon and like that. So, you yeah. need somebody with some of those qualities at your side in order to get things done. So when you talk about, you know, you find the humanity in the guy, what I would say is that's right. You find the human in the guy. You know what I mean? The, the human in humanity. It's not, there's nothing humanitarian about Korch, but he is intensely human. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then what did you learn from uh, Jim Cameron? Because he is just... I mean, what the man has accomplished is just mine. I'm going to keep my mitts up because you never know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. Uh, we, do, we do a lot of, uh, yeah, we like to, we have, uh, uh, we do martial arts, you know, on, uh, at the, we have a gym and stuff at the set. So we do, we do a lot of fighting with swords and shit like that. It's fun. He's always ready to spring into combat. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, oh man, I, uh, I mean, just being with, working with him is, uh, you just stay so engaged, you know, so creatively engaged and, uh, because he's, uh, and, and, and he, uh, he, he leads, he works, he works so damn hard himself that it really, you know, you have no choice, but, uh, you know, to show up. Yeah, so he's leading by example there, right? Like he's the hardest working guy on the set. Oh yeah, I oh no question. He's like totally engaged all the time, and so yeah, uh, so it's a real and and he does it with a, a, a you know obviously that he he's the full package. He can be intimidating. He can be you know scary to people and everything. Uh, um, but at the same time, he has a he is just a classic great sense of humor and fun and a very, very big heart. And he, he loves his people. So it's cool. You know, it all works great. It's a, it's a long, now I, we're, you know, we go back as friends now or colleagues and friends 12 years and so, and we've got a good ways to go, I hope so. I, I love working for him, with him, for him. And you've got how many uh, more movies are coming out? Well, we're working on four. We're working right now. We're working on Avatar two and Avatar three. So the first sequel and then the second sequel, uh, and then we have Avatar four and five. 
to uh, complete as well. So we'll be on it for a long time. Wow. Yeah. And that'll be the, that'll be the cycle. I mean, it's five films that tell a story. Each film is complete, you know, but the larger, there's a larger story of a, of, of a, of a planet and that that's being told. Wow. So I hope you can't tell me anything about it, but how do you feel about the work and about what you've done in it? And it's great because it's, it's, um, it, to to work with, I mean, first of all, the colleagues I work with are just spectacular. I think, and each of them, each of them, like Sam Worthington and Zoe Saldana, uh, Sigourney Weaver, they've they've all they've played their roles before, and they've had time to reflect and grow, and and it only gets kind of richer. So we have this sort of amazing opportunity to come together again, and uh, and to and to watch as the roles as my role in this world expands and uh, you begin to kind of, you begin to really examine facets of Quaritch that were not tapped in the first, in the first film. So it's a, uh, it's, it's a great adventure for sure. That's great. I think, and I think his character of him feeling into it is really a, a tremendous exploration of men in general. Yeah. And being a man, having that sense of duty and honor, but then, where along the line sometimes our path or our, you know, I don't want to say attention, but somewhere our mission gets kind of pushed off to one side and you can kind of go down that path a little bit. Yeah, it gets, uh, it gets corrupted. And, uh, um, and, and your own ego is part of the, the corrupting agent there. It seems to me other things as well, but uh, um, yeah, his his problem is <laughs> he, he's trying to shape a world to him rather than shape himself to the world. And and Pandora, if you think about it, Pandora is Pandora is a very live and a very fluid kind of a place. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything about it, you know. It's yeah. not a right, there are no right angles in Pandora. Quaritch is, is very much right angles, you know, and, and, it, and it's hard for him. And, and he's so, he's so egocentric that he's going to, he's going to bend this planet to his will rather than submitting to the planet as it yeah. were. You know? what I feel- he can't, doesn't submit. Yeah, and what I feel is a very classic masculine feminine. He is a quintessential masculine force where Pandora feels like a very feminine world. I, I think that that's true insofar as it goes, you know what I mean? I, I mean, I think you could probably write a, you know, a good doctoral uh, thesis with that, you know, on that. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm sure there are, denizens of pandora who would probably dispute that they're very male i know a lot of guys well, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying male female i'm saying masculine life force thing. right exactly life force energy it just feels like you said it's very light and fluid and creative and bright and he's yeah. this very right angle very structured and he's trying to fit into that we uh well he's trying to fit it to him it to him correct yes but, yeah, yeah. Even the you know we picked the you know the scars on my head. Uh, 
we we selected that very carefully. We wanted them to be almost like chevrons of rank. You know, we wanted them to be, you know, to be uh, straight. <laughs> you yeah. know, to, to be more of that kind of right angle stuff. You know, yeah. We we it was all it's all designed in there, and uh, and it took people. You know, people kind of understand it, and now we have opportunities to kind of expand go beyond and 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 find out more about it. yeah well i'm looking forward to that i definitely want to know more about him um as we wrap steven two two more things one is um you know you've been married for what is it 39 years now yeah it'll be 40 years in june yeah next year yeah, which is i mean first of all in 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 life in general that's an amazing accomplishment and in the entertainment business you being away as much as you have that's an amazing accomplishment how, how, tell me about that i mean what what has kept you guys together for 40 years um well gee there probably have been periods in our life when the only thing that kept us together was the kids mm -hmm. but that's fine you know what i mean because we always stayed together but i don't know the truth of the matter is <clears throat> we uh and met the right we met we were right for each other and and, and that sort of never altered and uh yeah and we uh you know you write out the hard times it's got i guess some of it has to do with uh you know some of the things you list as 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 important you know commitment and and duty and uh and love yeah yeah i think i mean it's my admiration you you never think that you could love your wife more than than you do because I've always loved her deeply. But my admiration really grows every year, every all the time for her as well. Yeah. So yeah, and oh, also assuming very of, strong, powerful woman. She what? I said I'm assuming very strong, powerful woman. I mean, for 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 the admiration and to handle and, you know, really her way, as you were saying earlier, all of that. Yeah. And a really good cook, <laughs> which always helps. She's 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 very strong, very independent, and uh, and very uh, she's she's great. Loves her very fierce, you know, very fiercely loyal, mm -hmm. all that. And she she guards, you know, <laughs> she guards the cave real well. <laughs> <laughs> Mama bear, right? Yeah, don't mess with it. You know? <laughs> good, good. I'm trying to be. I don't mess with her. So tell me about your biggest life lessons. Like, if you had to impart this on some of the younger men, some of the men who are listening, like, what are your biggest life lessons? Well, show up, be on time. There you go. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But you know, yeah, just, just, just show up. I'd say uh, that that's that, that's the that's the biggest lesson. I can give and don't give up, you know, just kind of keep and, and, and understand that, 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 uh, there are days when, you know, it's two steps forward and one step back. And then there are days when it's one step forward and three steps back, but that's just, that's just the way it is. If you, if, if you have an object that, you know, that, that you can do, there's nothing you can't do if you, if you set your mind to it you know the only thing holding you back a lot of times is is you uh, somebody said to me one time the easiest thing in the, the easiest thing in the world to find is a reason to fail and uh 
And, and I think that, that there's probably a lot of truth in that. So you got to find the reasons to succeed. I don't know. You got because the truth of the matter is, you can't teach anybody anything. They got to learn it for themselves. Experience. You have to have the. I will say this. I was looking at your, you know, in the in you'd sent me this wonderful uh, uh, sheet about about the podcast, and you talk about the seven the the core values, uh, right. these core values that you have, all of which are good, and uh, and it struck me that uh, that I thought that there's. A, there was an eighth value that that's not on there, you know, that I would probably say for myself mm -hmm. is the most important core value of all. And uh, it's kindness. And the one thing I've learned over it, the, I, what I, what I've learned over the, the years is that there's nothing more important than kindness, nothing. And I mean, nothing. And all of those things, you know, are very, very central to life. Life. most central one on your list being honor for me because honor means one thing it means my good name it seems to me and so and the only way I can kind of have it, it it's a it's a sense of personal honor how I view myself and also how I'm viewed by the world and my and that that sense of honor is constituted by all the other values that you've got there it mm -hmm. seems to me sure you know? they all so, work together they're all part of that. That's right. It's, you yeah. can't, they're difficult to separate, but some can be separate from other ones. But 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 in terms of if you put if you put integrity and commitment and courage and duty, a sense of duty and 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 a loving heart, uh, if you put all that together, then you are going to emerge as a as someone who has real honor, which is to say, you know, standing and a good name. And but but to that I would add I would add kindness. Yeah, know. to me kindness kind of comes out of love too because when we, we it does, well, it's not that it's not related absolutely yeah. yeah for us love is is about not just romantic love but it is really having that deep love for yourself number one and then for others right, right? and that would be kind of shown in the kindness that you show to other people if if you have integrity you have honor and you have love it shows up as kindness i i i agree although i think that it's also important to be kind to people who you may feel absolutely no love for at all <laughs> well yeah that's that's we, we, we could do another hour on this Stephen, talking about how if you're coming even if you can't stand the person if you still have love for them as a human and they're what they're going through then yeah, then, then you can respond with kindness. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I remember one of my favorite quotes is from one of my heroes is uh, Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and one time uh, Lincoln was looking across the <coughs> Congress floor and he said, uh, he pointed, he said, I do not like that man. I must get to know him better. Mm. And I always thought, whoa. I love that. <laughs> and it. yeah, if you, if I could, if I could, that's something to kind of live up to in a way, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, yeah. So. Yeah, well, listen, like they say, the people you, you dislike the most or irritate you the most or, you know, anger you the most are the ones you have the most to learn from. Those are the ones you need to go up to and have a conversation with. It is true. You, you do learn from, well, I've always said I've learned more from the bad. Mm -hmm. than from the good.
Yep. Because a lot of what becoming a good actor or a good carpenter or a good uh, basketball player, or a good uh, podcast host has to do with eliminating what's extraneous and what doesn't work, you know, what doesn't get you the, uh, uh, to your objective. Uh, uh, acting is, is certainly that way. It's a question of elimination a lot of the time. So uh, many times I've worked with people who I may not admire all that much. And, I, and I've learned from it, okay, I'm not going to be that person. But you know what I mean? That's not what I'm going to do. So lastly, Stephen, what do you want your legacy to be? Your legacy. Legacy. Wow. I'd like to be immortal. <laughs> yeah, my plan is to live forever and so far so good. Now, I guess the, I, all I mean by that is I love the idea. One of the things I love about film so much is that after you're, that I'm still looking at and appreciating and expressing admiration for <clears throat> actors who have been gone for 50, 60 years at that point. They have a, they've left a legacy of work. Which I, which I just, which I admire a lot. So certainly professionally, I'd like, I'd like my work, work to hold up, mm -hmm. and the film that I'm in to, to hold up. No question of that. Um, and beyond that, you know, I want to be, if I can be remembered by my family, uh, and and by the way that my father and my grandfather are remembered by the family, <clears throat> then I'll be satisfied with that and, and how are they part of, tell me how your father and grandfather remembered by the family by the family as with great respect and a lot of love and, and a whole lot of amusement too i mean you know with uh uh with, with but with with very high with high regard and with 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 the regard with with it's a continuum of values is pointed out that that you know we're all we're all part of this thing that that i i understand my father came from where my from my grandfather and <clears throat> and i come from him and so it gets pointed out to the kids who never knew them at all so in some sense they do come to know them you know they know their names my grandchildren they know who <clears throat> who dan lang was you know and they they knew their great great grandfather was so yeah so that that's it. I yeah, like to be you know thought of with affection <laughs> by the family. <laughs> by the and that is truly a powerful legacy, not just known by others for what you've done, but respected and revered and loved by your own family for generations. To have them understand what you gave to them, even if they didn't know you personally. There's a lot here to learn from. So a lot for us to integrate into our own lives from what Lang has told us today. So I brought the men of the round table together to get their takeaways from his interview. So joining me for this round table session are Doug, John, Tom, and Barry. Doug leads us off. He got into talking about being in a play where you have to do it 500 times. He says, you know, he talked about how, but every time you go out there and you look for another way to improve, another way to get better. So I was really feeling how much he, he's made his whole life about constantly moving forward. But for instance, it sounds like Dustin Hoffman was a real influence on him. 
Yeah. Because Dustin Hoffman just always got deeper and deeper, more into the character, more into understanding how to present the character. So yeah. I would, you know, I would guess that he really admired that because, you know, what was interesting is, you know, so much of times, at least my impression of people that are on Broadway and in acting, they always seem like they're all there for the applause. And with him, it was nothing about external gratification. It was all about his personal development, getting better, moving forward. Here's John's takeaway on being open to all opportunities and possibilities. The way he auditioned for everything. He said, I just auditioned for everything. And he wasn't, he was never stuck on one thing. He just wanted, it felt to me like he wanted to experience it all. And he never got pigeonholed into a certain area or his, he was never blind, had the blinders on and just wanted to go in one direction all the time and force anything. He was just so open about, I'm just going for everything. And I felt that was really how he was successful is just, I'm good enough. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to audition for everything and just being open on that part of his career really led him to the success that he has had. Tom's takeaway is comfort versus complacency. And once you're comfortable, I think complacency starts to set in. So you've got to keep that at bay and that's what keeps you moving forward. And I going back to what Doug was talking about earlier with doing all of those shows every single day, week in and week out, you, you, you know, you could either go one or two ways. You can get complacent where you're like phoning it in and you're just doing it by memory over and over again. But the really good ones who want to continue like Dustin Hoffman, like John Malkovich, like Stephen Lang was, is, you know, they want to look deeper. They want, how can I improve little by little by little? And I think that really overcomes that comfort zone and complacency. And Barry wraps us up with the impact of Lang always striving to do better. You go for it, you give it your best, and you never quit. And you just keep giving it your all. And, and there was a point in there where he said, you know, we're never perfect, but you're always striving to be better in each moment. And that's where I'm taking that it's never going to be perfect, but always striving to be better. I want to thank the men of the round table for their insights. Really appreciate you guys coming out and doing that. Now, Lang's story is one of making your own way, believing in yourself and always, always pushing for more to be better because that's what a warrior does continually drives forward, never settling, never being satisfied because the minute you do that, complacency and comfort kicks in and that's going to drag you down. So now I want to know what you got out of Stephen Lang's story. Are you going to take on striving for excellence in all you do? Are you going to look for the magic in everything around you? And are you going to be there as a mentor for others who are motivated to achieve what you've already achieved? Let me know. As always, you can find me on social media. The links are on the website, wlkhpodcast.com. Just click there and leave a comment. And you can also join the Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes group on Facebook. So look for that. Also, remember to rate us and to leave a review and comment. And most importantly, as always, make sure to share this show with men you know will get value from it. I'm positive there's at least three men you know that you can think of right now who will get value out of this and whose lives will change for the better hearing Stephen's story. So please pass it on. So I want to thank Stephen Lang for joining us today, for being real and honest, and for telling us the story of his journey to modern manhood. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. 
I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you, to be your brother on your hero's journey. I'll talk to you next week. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.